0: Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now with today's message, here's Ed Stevens.
1: Here we go for another study of biblical history and eschatology from a full preterist perspective. Last time we looked at the second of the five sections of Romans, which we labeled as the Good News. This time we need to deal with a couple of questions that have been raised in regard to some fellow preterists who interpret Romans from a collective body perspective. It is important to do this right here at this point in our study before we start looking at Romans chapter 6 in detail. And before we look at those two questions, however, let's ask God for his blessing on our study. Sovereign Lord of the universe, the only true God and our Heavenly Father, full of mercy and grace for your chosen servants. We need your Spirit's illumination to understand your word, especially here in Romans. There are so many confusing and contradictory opinions floating around out there which can lead us in the wrong direction spiritually and cause us to produce bad fruit in our lives and in the lives of those whom we are connected with. Help us rightly divide your Word, so that we may clearly understand what your bondservant Paul intended to communicate to his Jewish and Gentile hearers in the city of Rome in AD 58. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the past two weeks, I have received a couple of questions related to our studies here in Romans that I want to clear up first before we move into chapter 6 and following. The first of these questions is dealing with Romans chapter 6 verse 1 in regard to The way the Young's Literal Translation renders that verse, and I want to read the New American Standard first, and then we'll read Young's Literal Translation. It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, and by the way, you may want to get your Bible out and have it open in front of you as we look at Romans chapter 6, a couple of verses here. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. In the New American Standard, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And then Young's literal translation renders it this way. What then shall we say? Shall we continue in the sin that the grace may abound? And then here's the question that one of our listeners wrote to me in regard to Young's translation of this says, you appear to take this verse as has traditionally been interpreted. In other words, Paul, in your view, is warning the Gentiles from abusing grace by living it up and partying hardy. At least that's what it sounded like you were arguing in your most recent podcast. Have you ever dealt with the view that Sam Frost, Dave Curtis, and Alan Bondar have taught? They suggest that, as it is in the Young's Literal Translation, Paul isn't talking about sinning too much, but rather doing just the opposite, continuing in the sin, the sin of Adam. In other words, they think that Paul is referring to the Roman Christians' attempts to please God by continuing to follow the law. They think that the sin is equivalent to the law. Since most of the translations omit the definite article, the, here, in regard to sin, which precedes both sin and grace in the Greek, is it possible that Paul is making the same point as he made to the Galatians, who were beginning with grace and attempting to perfect that grace with works? If Paul wrote, Shall we continue sinning?, the traditional view would make a lot more sense. However, When he prefaces sin with thee, it appears to me that he's making the opposite point to the way that verse has been traditionally interpreted. Well, that's a good question and deserves a good answer. And we'll probably deal with it again when we get into Romans chapter 6 even more thoroughly. But I gave a a quick response to this and I'll share that with you. Thanks for sharing this interesting question about Romans chapter 6 verse 1 and its usage of the word the sin and the grace. I will put this in the list of things to deal with in the podcast that deals with the third section of Romans in our outline. I heard Sam Frost teach this idea back when he was allegedly a full preterist, but from my study of Koine Greek at the intermediate exegetical level, it appears to be a bogus argument. I have over three dozen commentaries on Romans and close to two dozen Greek grammars. Plus, I have had over two years of New Testament Greek study at Christian college and seminary. And never once did I hear my Greek instructors or the grammars or the commentaries say that the usage of the definite article here in Romans chapter 6 verse 1 should be construed this way. Sam Frost, needed that equation. In other words, the sin in Romans chapter 6 verse 1 equals the law. He needed that equation to buttress his notion of resurrection of a collective body out of sin death. He was letting his collective body paradigm drive his definition of terms and his interpretation of text and his translation of Romans chapter 6 verse 1. If Frostview was correct, it would mean that Paul was arguing against continued law-keeping by the Jewish Christians. In other words, they had died to sin, it says here in Romans chapter 6 verse 2 and verses 6 through 11, and if sin there means law, then that means they had died to law-keeping. They had died to the law. But that is patently false. False. The Judaizers accused him of teaching that very thing when he went to Jerusalem in AD 58, and he emphatically denied the charge and went into the temple to pay his sacrificial dues and prove that there was nothing to that accusation against him. He kept the law and taught Jewish Christians inside Judea and outside in the diaspora to continue keeping the law until the very end. Furthermore, Jesus had commanded those Jewish Christians, including Paul himself, to keep every jot and tittle of the law until it was all fulfilled and passed away at 8070. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Paul would have been directly contradicting what Jesus commanded him and all the other Jewish Christians to do, which is to keep the law more scrupulously than the scribes and Pharisees, as a good testimony to the Jews so that the gospel would be attractive to their fellow Jews. Sam Frost simply did not understand the historical situation with the Jew-Gentile conflict. Plus, he was listening too much to N.T. Wright and some of the other New Perspective on Paul advocates. Paul constructs a proper balance between antinomianism and legalism for both the Jewish and Gentile Christians there in Rome and elsewhere, without negating the law-keeping of the Jewish Christians, nor justifying the dualism, libertinism, or antinomianism of some of the Gentiles. When we remember what Paul's purpose was for writing this epistle, then we have to ask how Frost's argument would fit into Paul's overall flow of thought. It does not fit. In my opinion, Frost's argument was artificial and contrived and out of sync with Paul's real argumentation and his purposes for writing the book of Romans. Well, like I said, we will cover a little bit more about that in future lessons, but I wanted to introduce the thought right here so that we would start thinking about this idea of the sin equaling the law. In this context, it will not work, and we showed why, because it would mean that Paul was teaching that they had died to law-keeping, and here Paul would be teaching them to forsake the law. Okay, there's another question that I want to deal with here in this session, and it's a question about the use of the word body in Romans chapter 6 verse 12. Here's the question that I've received. Question, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6-10. through 10. And, when Michael disputed with the devil about the body of Moses in Jude, verse 9, I was told recently that the word body in both of those verses was referring to old covenant Israel under the law. That is to say, referring to a collective body, not to individual bodies. Is this correct? Dave Curtis took this same approach in his sermon on July the 24th, 2011, based on the phrase, your mortal body, as found in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. This particular interpretation of these two texts is incorrect, and here's why. Those who advocate this interpretation do so merely because it's the only way these two texts will make sense in their collective body resurrection view. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Jude verse 9, where it talks about to be absent from the body and Michael disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. Collective body guys have assumed that the collective body view is being taught in these two texts, therefore they have to twist the meaning of these two texts to make them fit their collective body view. They are assuming what they need to prove. Let's take a look at the context of each of these two scriptures to see if their interpretation is validated by the verses surrounding them. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verses 6 through 10 reads this way, Here's the biblical text under consideration here. This is in the New King James Version. It says, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now notice what verse 10 says here in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. You may want to open your Bible to that verse. We, which is speaking of a group of individuals, must all, not just some of them, but all of them must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one, not the whole collective body, standing before him as a unit but rather each one of those individuals in that group, each one, each and every individual may receive the things done in the body, that is his own individual body, according to what he individually has done. Do you see the point there? There's not a collective body anywhere in this context. This is talking about individuals here. And the phrase in the body, from the body, is referring to each individual in that group of saints there at Corinth. Each of them had their own body, and each of them would be judged in the presence of Christ according to what he himself individually had done in his own body. Furthermore, we need to point out here that the judgment scene mentioned here in verse 10 was supposed to occur at the parousia, And notice that Paul does not distinguish between living saints versus dead saints standing before Christ to be judged. Paul explicitly says that all the saints, both living and dead, would appear before the judgment seat of Christ at the parousia. What does that imply? What would have to happen before those living saints could appear before the judgment seat of Christ? their bodies would have to be changed. And that is exactly what the preceding verses are talking about. Second Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 4. A bodily change for the living. Do you catch the power of that? Verse 10 totally nukes the collective body interpretation of Second Corinthians chapter 5 verses 6 through 8. Apostle Paul here is clearly talking about each individual being judged for what he has individually done in his or her own individual body. The collective body idea is not here in this text. That concept has to be shoehorned or force-fitted or imported into this text from outside the context. The collective body interpretive system needs this text to be talking about a collective body so that they can avoid the obvious implications of an individual bodily change that was mentioned in the previous verses of 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 4. The collective body system simply cannot work with a bodily change to individual mortal bodies. So they have to twist the meaning of this context to make it fit their preconceived collective body interpretation. But as you can see from looking at verse 10, when these verses are studied in their context, they are clearly talking about individual bodies and not at all about one big collective body. The commentaries agree that this is a reference to individual bodies being changed from mortal to immortal at the parousia. And it's referring to the same thing that we find in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, as well as Philippians 3.21 and 1 John 3.2. This bodily change happened to the living and remaining saints in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the time when the dead disembodied souls were raised out of Hades and given new bodies, as it teaches us in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 51 and 52. In other words, the dead were raised out of Hades and given their new bodies, while the living saints had their bodies changed. When this bodily change occurred, the living saints were then in the unseen realm, where the resurrected dead saints were. Both groups then were caught up to be with Christ forever afterwards. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Now let's deal with the uh, verse in Jude, Jude verse 9, that talks about the body of Moses. And this is another text that I think all of the collective body guys interpret as a reference to the collective body of Old Testament Jewish saints. And again, we want to look at the context in which Jude verse 9 is found. We're going to start in verse 4 and read down through verse 13. You might want to open your Bible to this. Jude, that's the short one-chapter book that's right before the book of Revelation. So it's in the next to the last book of our Bible. Jude verses 4 through 13. It doesn't have two or more chapters. It's only got one chapter, so we don't even mention the chapter it's in. We just say the verses. Jude, verses 4 through 13. It says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beast, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam, for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah these are spots in your love feast while they feast with you without fear serving only themselves they are clouds without water carried about by the winds late autumn trees without fruit twice dead pulled up by the roots raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Well, you notice verse 9 was right in the middle of that section of text that we read from Jude. Notice verse 9 in particular. Here's what several commentaries say about the body of Moses as it's used there in verse 9. Not a one of them talk about it as being the collective body of Jews. They all refer to it as the individual body of Moses himself. Notice what they say. Beal Carson, in their commentary on the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament, uh, talk about this verse, and they say this. The incident that Jude 9 describes, we know about from the church fathers, beginning with Clement of Alexandria in fragments on the epistle of Jude that we have, who claims that Jude is quoting the Assumption of Moses, which is an apocryphal work. But no extant manuscript preserves this particular story. There is, however, a manuscript called the Milan manuscript that preserves another apocryphal book called Testament of Moses, whose ending has been lost. In the long excursus, Bauckham argues that this lost ending is what originally preserved the story that Jude here briefly relates of Michael disputing with the devil over the body of Moses. The tradition of angels disputing with the devil goes back to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2 and grows stronger in the literature of early Judaism. He says, The idea seems to be that when Moses died, Satan wanted to claim or destroy the body of Moses rather than bury him, perhaps on the grounds that Moses was a failure, just as Satan wants to claim that Joshua in the same sense was in Zechariah 3, verse 2. Well, that was a pretty good explanation of Jude, verse 9, but there's more. Uh, In the Bible Difficulties book, the author says this, This account of Jude verse 9 about the body of Moses is not found in the Old Testament, but is thought to have been included in a Christian treatise, now lost, entitled The Assumption of Moses, according to Buttrick in the Interpreter's Dictionary, and according to Origen in his writing called On the Principles. It would be a logical fallacy to argue, however, that an inspired biblical author like Jude was strictly limited to the contents of the canonical Old Testament for all valid information as to the past. Both Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 refer to historical episodes that are not recorded in the Old Testament. Apparently, there was a valid an accurate body of oral tradition available to believers in the New Testament period. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they were perfectly able to report such occurrences in connection with their teaching ministry. We are to deduce from this passage, then, that there was such a contest waged by the representatives of heaven and hell over the body of Moses. Then in the New International Bible Commentary, which is abbreviated as NIBC, uh, they have this to say about Jude verse 9 and the body of Moses. The Old Testament makes no reference to Michael disputing with the devil and simply states that God buried his servant Moses in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is, Deuteronomy 34, verse 6, a secret no doubt designed to prevent the Israelites from turning the spot into an idolatrous sanctuary. The dispute referred to by Jude was recorded in the now-lost ending of an apocryphal Jewish work called the Assumption of Moses. But the tradition can be reconstructed from references To that account, in a number of early Christian writings, Satan laid claim to the corpse of Moses for his kingdom of darkness because Moses had killed an Egyptian in Exodus chapter 2 verse 12. He was therefore a murderer, no matter how virtuous were his subsequent achievements, and so was unworthy of honorable burial. Satan, in his ancient role of accuser of God's people, was seeking to prove Moses' guilt. In response to the charge, Michael did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against Satan. Barclay expresses the opinion of most commentators that Jude means, "...if the greatest of the good angels refuse to speak evil of the greatest of the evil angels..." Even in circumstances like that, surely no human being may speak evil of any angel. This interpretation takes accusations, or blasphemy in the text, as a genitive of quality. And as such, it suits the context both in Jude and in the parallel passage in Second Peter 2, verse 11, as slanderous accusations. The terms used in this passage are forensic, the language of the courtroom. Baucom considers that Jude's meaning must be determined by his source, the assumption of Moses, and according to that, it was Satan who had slandered Moses by accusing him of murder. Michael, in his capacity as a legal advocate, refuted the slander, and appeal to God for judgment against Satan. The Lord rebuked thee. Michael refused to take it upon himself to pronounce judgment, for that was God's prerogative. The New International Greek Testament Commentary, which is abbreviated NIGTC, uh, has this to say about Jude 9 and the body of Moses. It says there are several patristic references to a lost apocryphal work called The Assumption of Moses, which apparently spoke of Moses' removal to heaven, Jude verse 9. This work may have been the concluding part or a revised edition of The Testament of Moses, the extant text of which breaks off before the end of Moses' farewell speech. Regarding the Jewish belief that Moses did not die, see, in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, in its volume 2, page 939 and footnote number 92. Also in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, they said this, The archangel Michael was sent to bury Moses' body, but according to Jewish tradition, the Assumption of Moses... The devil argued with the angel about the body, apparently claiming the right to dispose of it. These commentaries that we've looked at point out the obvious. Jude was talking about the literal, individual, physical body of Moses. He was not talking about a collective body of the Jewish people who came out of Egypt. That idea is totally foreign to this context. When we have such an easy and obvious interpretation as the above commentaries have provided for us, which clearly and perfectly harmonizes with the whole context of Jude and all of Scripture, there is no need to go looking for a different interpretation that disrupts the context and makes nonsense out of the flow of thought in Jude. The collective body view advocates are simply grasping at straws to extricate themselves from the exegetical quicksand that their flawed view has thrown them into. They hate the idea of a rapture so much that they are forced by their bias and prejudice to manufacture something, anything, out of the thin air to get around the rapture idea. I would suggest that it's much better to let the context of Scripture tell us what it means and then accept it and follow it. We need to conform our faith to the true exegesis of Scripture rather than force-fit our own preconceived interpretations into Scripture. Furthermore, when we see all the bad fruit that the collective body view has produced, such as universalism, covenant creationism, hyper-cessationism, immortal body now view, heaven now, no more sin now, or continuing to sin in the afterlife, and even raw skepticism has been produced by the collective body view. Some of the people have left the faith and gone into skepticism as a result of the uh way that the collective body view interprets the biblical text, when we look at all this bad fruit that's come from the collective body view, it should make us back away from the collective body view. It is not a safe or healthy view for us to follow. Every part of it tends to undermine and weaken our faith and our Christian lifestyle. So far in our studies of the first five chapters of Romans, we have seen both the bad news and the good news. Next time, we'll see how both Jews and Gentiles were expected to live in response to that good news here in chapters 6 and 7. What kind of lifestyle changes would they need to make as an expression of their faith and gratitude to God? And this raises another question against the collective body view of Romans 6-11. through 11. The fact that Paul is talking about the kind of lifestyle that they needed to live in response to the grace of God shows that chapters 6 and 7 especially are dealing with that change in lifestyle. Chapter 7 is explicitly talking about the struggle that Apostle Paul as well as those saints there in Rome were having as they tried to live godly lives as an expression of their gratitude for their justification. That automatically shows that chapter 7 cannot be talking about a collective body struggling to be resurrected out of covenantally dead Judaism. That collective body idea has to be imported into the context from outside. It is not there otherwise. We will see why I say this in our upcoming sessions on Romans chapter 6 through 11. You'll want to read those chapters this coming week before we begin to study it next time. Well, that'll wrap it up for this session. I hope that was helpful for you. If you have any questions or comments about this, I would love to hear from you. Please let me know what you're learning in this study and what you think about it. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now
0: with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.